first, happy Black History Month, everyone. Yes, it is, it's still Black History Month. And then next month is Women's History Month, so I'm going to get up here and celebrate women, too. Um, my name is Shaq. I'm one of the pastors here at Garden City Church. Um, and I'm excited to study Acts. I never actually study Acts in a community. I actually, I read it myself, but I actually never studied it. So I'm glad that we're studying this together. Um, but be, before we continue uh, the second half of Acts 1, I have um, an intentional and serious question to ask you all. The question is, what are you walking in with this morning? The motivation behind my question is not for you to answer out loud, to shout, to say, I'm feeling this way, but I want us to consider the everyday um, value of our existence. And our everyday con of, uh, value um, consists of our body, mind, and spirit. So for some of us, we may be carrying several things. It may be the fear and anxiety of the unknown. Uh, or maybe the, the impulse uh, to control some untamed stress. Or a deep empathy for those who are walking the road of pain and suffering. Or maybe a physical and emotional exhaustion from the everyday task of survival and responsibility where you can't turn off your mind or slow down or it's anger over what's happening in Michigan State, or it's the natural disasters, or if someone done an injustice to you or someone you love, or most of us have come here uh, to be very critical about church, um, or to feel a certain way about the music and the pastor and the message and all those things. To share a little bit about myself and what I'm bringing in this morning, if I can just be human for a second, um, leading up to Sunday, especially when I preach, um, I feel normally a multi-layer anxiety. The complex anxiety that is racially and socially tethered to performance and compliance the background lyrics of how do I belong? How do I fit in this mold with these people? How do I be black in white spaces? Many of us, of you guys, don't have to think about that when you come to Sunday service because everybody in this church looks like you. But for me, as a brown man, I carry anxiety. And I leave here exhausted. It's not, it's, I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty about who you are as a, a, a white American, but I, I feel that constantly. So I'm walking in with anxiety, walking in with this pressure to comply and to be in this space with my white brothers and sisters. So this track plays on repeat until I can ground myself with the grace of God the sacred rhythms of silence. I practice silence a lot and it helps me. Um, and 
the warmth of shared stories. I can, I can leave here and I can talk to my friend Isaiah like, yeah, you felt that too? He's like, yeah, I, I felt that. So whatever you are bringing in this morning, whatever it is, I hold space for you. And I don't just say that as a, as a way to gaslight you or to, to, to spiritually abuse you at some way, but I actually genuinely hold space for you. And I hope in return that you can hold space for me as I carry the burden of being brown in white spaces. So let's pray. If we can pray and bring all of ourselves to God. And uh, let's get into God's word. Lord, you right now are holding and sustaining the cosmos. We don't have to think about the stars Saturn, the sun, the earth, but God, you and your power hold all things. And in that same act, Jesus, you hold us together. So God, in this very moment, in this very, the breath that we're breathing in this second, Jesus, would you hold us, hold us together. Would you hold us up as you held your son on the cross and you held him up would you hold us up? And would you speak to me, speak through me? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last Sunday, Pastor Dennis walked us through the first 11 verses of Acts 1, focusing on the way the apostles and us need the Spirit to fulfill the mission given to them in us by Jesus. Pastor Dennis talked about merely knowing Jesus' resurrection and knowing about the kingdom of God is not enough. We need the Spirit of God, amen? So today we're going to focus on the rest of Acts chapter 1, which focuses on the preparation for witness and the invitation to wait and pray. So I know we normally don't do this, and most of us come from practices where we usually do this, but instead of me reading the Word of God to you, we have Miss Katie Long. She's in the room. I don't, she, she left. I'll just say Derek Long as far as they're together. But she's going to, go ahead. Okay. Well, sorry. Dennis is going to read the verse for us. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to Garden City. Yeah, so it's like I didn't realize until exactly this moment when Kenny told me, oh, hey, we're missing the cord that runs from the computer to the board. This was the moment where I was like, oh, that's actually a problem. <laughs> so Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, 
The scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. That's the word of the Lord. You are supposed to say thanks be to God. That's sorry, sorry. <laughs> we all normally do that, but um, so thank you, Dennis. So to kind of connect a little bit to Acts one eleven and what we're reading today. So as Jesus was ascending, the disciples were just watching him, concerned by his absence. And suddenly two men interrupt their gaze by redirecting their attention back to the right place, to Jerusalem, not towards wondering where or how Jesus went. Watching Jesus and watching for Jesus could have been a significant temptation for the disciples. His departure could easily turn towards monument thinking and building. The disciples could have gone ahead of Jesus' instructions by protesting their own liberation for Israel's kingdom, or ignored Jesus by returning to their normal lives. But instead, in a moment of loss, they move forward in faith, believing and trusting the arrival of God's Spirit. So the next assignment is to return to Jerusalem, better known as the Holy City a place of trauma and survival, the very place where God wants to meet them. The apostles were eager to obey. And this is actually contrary to some of their initial reactions after the crucifixion and even after the resurrection. We see disciples scattering after Jesus' arrest. Then several of them leave Jerusalem. Some even go back to their old job in fishing in Galilee. We should never discount the labor step of courage and obedience his followers had to take in going back to Jerusalem, unsure and unclear of a promised future inside Rome. 
a dominant empire's hard reality to accept. For us, just think about the political threats from Rome at this time when Jesus has just been crucified and his disciples are seen as associated with him or the possible religious threats from Jewish leaders. Friends, this is not an easy journey to go back to a place where Jesus was once killed to go back there and wait for something that is unknown. So faithfulness requires holy resilience. I'm going to say it again. Faithfulness requires holy resilience. They go back to this place. So they, the 11 disciples, the other woman, Jesus' family, and about 120 people arrive in an upper room, positioning themselves in expectation ready for transformation and renewal into what they do not know. Say it again. They don't know what they are waiting for. They didn't know when Pentecost was going to arrive. We know because we know the story. We have the Bible in front of us. For them, as this first encounter, they did not know what they were waiting for. And at the end of Luke's gospel, he records this. And they, the disciples stay continually at the temple praising God. A lot of times when I read that word continually, I'm like, is that real? Like 24-7 continually praising God? Like, no. That, that, I just, I, when I read that, I just always thought about that. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited. But this sort of waiting isn't a passive wait. It's a wait that's not empty-handed. It's a wait for hope until they are clothed with power from on high. See, God didn't gather them according to their wishes or to keep some religious tallies or just to come to Sunday and leave and go back to our place, but through holy desire, they devoted themselves to prayer. Holy desire. They devoted themselves to prayer. Notice how Luke didn't say one individual prayed and everyone else listened, but he says they all joined together constantly in prayer. They must have prayed for empowerment to be obedient. They must have prayed for understanding of this promise that God offered them. And they were not only praying as the community, but they also were reading the Word of God. We know from Luke 24, 45, that Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the Scriptures. So in this mixed assembly, perhaps people are praying the books of, book of Psalms from cover to cover. And as they do, reading about Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, they can start to see how the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are being fulfilled. So as they prepare for this unknown future with a new understanding of Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture, they too become aware of their troubled past, a past that contains betrayal, 
of Judas that now requires replacement. So Peter stood up in a room almost like this with 120 people and gives his first of many sermons. He addresses the crowd by announcing two significant verses in Psalms. He says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, which is found in Psalm 69. And may another take his place of leadership, which is found in Psalm 109. Both Psalm 109 and 69 are Psalms of David. Both are as well Psalms of vindication. In Psalm 69, David's enemy seeks to destroy him without cause. So David prays against him that God would help him and to save him from his enemies. Likewise, in Psalm 109, David has been betrayed by his own friend. So David prays that God would destroy his enemies. So Peter, therefore, may have associated these foreshadowings of Jesus when he quotes these two verses. If he does, then Peter is looking at the sufferings of David, the prayers of David, the betrayers of David, as a pattern of a David-like Messiah in his betrayer, Judas. Peter goes on to say this, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. Why did Peter think it was necessary for a replacement? Why was he so deeply concerned? God could usually ease, God could usually use 11 disciples. To take it further, God doesn't need any of his disciples to accomplish his plans, but why was Peter so concerned about it being necessary? You remember back in Luke 22, the Last Supper, when Jesus is about to go be crucified, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Most of us want, most of us want to be the greatest, but the disciples are arguing. As Jesus is about to die, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Jesus then engages this conversation by redirecting their motives to something greater, something expansive and long-lasting, he calls them to service. He says, you are those who stood by me in my trials. In my neighborhood, we will often say, you were with me through thick and thin. You were, like, you were with me like this. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, like the familiar question to Jesus about the rest, restoration of Israel's reign in the world, their concern now is who will fill out the number. We need to do this. We need the guy to start this mission. Someone must be chosen for this uncertain future. 
they had to show that this is a continuation of faithfulness to the God of Israel. Again, the main reason that the disciples think that they need to replace Judas is because they understand that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Each member was positioned to run, to rule alongside the Messiah. They didn't forget his words. They knew that they were supposed to sit on thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And then when I, when I was reading that, I was like, is, is, is Peter having these political motivations? Is he, is he trying to stir up something? And as I was reading it, I was noticing that Peter wasn't only just moved by political motivation, he was also wanted to be faithful to the mission of the, the, the apostles. So he wanted another member to be a part of God's plan. So he didn't just pick anyone. This unique person needed a similar experience to the disciples. Someone who was there from the very beginning up to Jesus' baptism until he ascended back into heaven. So they, the mixed assembly, nominated two people. Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed for God's direction and will for their choice. And after they prayed, Luke tells us that they cast lots. Very interesting. We don't really understand casting lots, but they, they cast lots. So casting lots was both a Roman and a Jewish practice. Romans had a long casting lots, that Rome, Romans had long cast lots for the replacement of Roman governors and the area of office they would take. In ancient Israel, we use lots to choose workers for special duty. So you're probably wondering how this will look. They would, oftentimes, they would break pottery, put it in a container, they would use rocks, and they would write the person's name on it. And oftentimes, they would shake it up, and whatever the first name that comes out, they'll pick it up and say, okay, Ruth is a person, she's our guy, she's our woman. Or they will have somebody blindly pick some out of the, out the container, and then that person will be appointed as the leader. It's crazy how they make decisions back in the day. So things are now clear, and Matthias is called to join in with the others by praying and waiting, waiting and praying. If Matthias is the right guy, God would do the same as he did with his apostles. He would sit him down and he will have him pray and wait for his spirit to come so they can do their mission in Israel to the ends of the earth. This text was probably one of the ones that of the text, I'm like, this is not fun. Why do I have this text? And the text was so confusing in some ways and it was also um, difficult to, to teach on. But as I was looking at this, I'm like, how do I connect this to us? How do I bring this experience down to us as believers today? And I, brought, I thought about two things. I'm not going to make it super fancy. I'm just going to be super straightforward with you guys. And, and the first one is this. Waiting detoxes our urgency to produce. The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit. 
We know the whole story, but they did not know what they were waiting for. I imagine Peter got impatient and decided the replacement of Judas was the best and next necessary step for them. But I wonder if he was just tired of waiting. If he just said, you know what, we're just going to do this, it's what we do, and we just, Matthias, come on, let's go. We're, 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 we're done waiting. But for us, to really be uh, like blunt is that we really suck at waiting. We are impatient people. Waiting is such a huge burden for us as computerized, instant everything, whatever is convenient type of people. Our grind culture thrives on us not stopping and waiting. Waiting goes against all that we have been socialized to maintain, the pace and the disconnection of grind culture. There's no system, no system in our culture that responds and makes space for us to wait on the Lord. This is why it's such an unfamiliar place and practice for us. This is why it's the last thing on our minds. Our culture thrives on busyness and productivity than the discipline of waiting. Why should I wait? I have everything I need. If I need to research, I'll just go on Google. If I need to buy it, I'll just go to Target. We have everything we need. Why should we wait? We tend to believe that waiting is not productive because it leaves us lacking. We see waiting as a barrier to where we are trying to go, whether with our plans, our projects, our money, our churches, our relationships. We think we know better than God. So even as I was writing this sermon, I had trouble waiting on the Lord. Because I'm like, oh man, I really want to say this. Man, if I just, if I just, come, up to my, if I just come up with my own conclusions, I feel good about myself. I'll, I'll, I'll approach the sermon this way, but God was like, no, you need to actually practice this right now. You need to wait on me to speak. And again, we suck at waiting. So waiting detoxes our urgency to produce. I wonder if we heard the same instruction given to the disciples, how would we respond? I wonder about the things that we would say to Jesus saying like, you have to do something. Least tell us to clean the rooms, least tell us to go to the neighborhood, but waiting seems harder for us. And as we move into this neighborhood, as we come here to hopefully move to the, the flourishing of the neighborhood, there is so much to do. It's a lot to do. There's so much to accomplish. But if we don't have the priority to wait on God, we'll miss it. We'll miss it. And us as Americans, we love coming into places that are underprivileged, that are marginalized, and we come in that place and we can just be our, we can just be their savior, right? We can just be, we can just have that complex of coming in and we know what they need. 
but really waiting deprograms that. Waiting positions us to be like, God, what are you saying? What are these people? Who are the people in that neighborhood who are already doing your work that we can work closely with? But I wonder how would we, how would we respond if we had the same question to us? Go back to Garden City and wait for me there. How many of you guys will actually leave the service? How many of you guys will actually pick up your children and say, you know what, it's, it's bedtime, it's, it's, it's nap time. No, wait for me, right? wait for me. I know that waiting may not look like a lot or too much, but our willingness to wait reveals what we're waiting for. What are you waiting for here? Waiting builds our dependency on his spirit. It positions our hearts to hear. I believe God's mission will be better understood if we actually waited for him. I'm going to say that again. I believe God's mission will be better known if we actually waited for him. So waiting detoxes our urgency to produce. Two, prayer saturates our mobility with the Spirit. Praying is what makes waiting active. Prayer is not something that comes naturally or easy for most of us. It's something that requires learning and discipline, and it can be quite intimidating for a lot of us. Growing up, most of, us, most of us were told that we need to pray, but we were never taught how to pray. Or that your prayers don't need to be, or your prayers need to be well edited and pristine and polished. But it can be messy. It can even be silent. Prayer is not a spiritual gift. Say it again, prayer is not a spiritual gift given to a privileged few. Rather, the invitation to approach God's throne with confidence. So, the, so, so we may receive mercy and grace for the things that we need. It's not someone who stands up here who can speak in tongues, who can prophesy, who can, who can pray the longest, who can pray the neatest. Praying is not a spiritual gift. Praying and waiting are some of the hardest practices of the Christian faith, but the most intimate thing that we are invited into. And that's what Jesus was trying to invite his disciples into. Be intimate with me. Wait and pray and wait for me. See, we are all called to pray. All called to pray. Not just simply in our homes or in, in private, but together with other believers. See, although praying by ourselves is so important, but there is, there's a power that breaks loose when we pray together as Christians, as believers, that God actually moves through us. When we pray and wait together, it makes space for the Spirit to break. Have any of you guys um, seen what, what's happening at, uh, what is that college called, Osbury? You guys, you guys are, when, when you see that, it's like, do you get excited? 
I see some head shake. When I see that, I'm like, man, I want that here. I want that at Garden City. I want that at this church and these people for us to experience the Spirit. The Spirit. So like the disciples, praying God's word about God's kingdom here on earth. And they were able to be a vessel for God's kingdom. Just want to say this prayer is a requirement when we are prepared to be a witness to the world and in this community and also our families. If we aren't praying, if we aren't waiting, if we aren't praying and waiting, then what are we doing? Jesus' final instruction to his disciples was to wait and pray, and that's it. I hope that we can become a church that waits and pray. I hope, that's my desire, that we can be in this neighborhood and not just doing reckless and mindless work to these people in this community, but we can be able to come together to pray and to wait upon the Holy Spirit to move upon us. Again, there's so much work to do when we pray. And oftentimes when we pray, there's also a lot of excuses that happen when we pray or when we gather to pray. We often say, well, the kids have soccer. Soccer's a good thing. I'm not against soccer. Or, you know, um, we have this meeting coming up, and we will put everything up when, we are, when it's time to pray, when it's time to wait. So if we don't get these two instructions down, we, we can miss the Spirit moving upon us, upon this church, upon our communities. So my challenging question to you is this. What would motivate you to make prayer and waiting a priority in your daily life? If you don't know how to do that individually, practice it in community. Next month here, we are planning a prayer night. I don't know if everyone's going to show up. There's things that happen, but... My desire, when I was reading this, I'm like, I want to practice waiting and praying in community and hoping that the Spirit will show up in a very tangible and new way. So again, how do we, how do we make space in our lives and our priorities to wait and pray? So we're going to close in prayer, but... Before I close in prayer, this is, there's, going to be, there's going to be a prayer that's on the screen here that will kind of direct us um, as a communal prayer, and then we'll kind of lead into our time of communion. So we can just read it all together, and then uh, we'll say amen, and then we'll kind of transition out. I'll start. Breathe in us, O Holy Spirit, that our thoughts may be holy. Act in us, O Holy Spirit, that our work too may be holy. Draw our hearts, O Holy Spirit, that we love but what is holy. Strengthen us, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard us then, O Holy Spirit, that we may always be holy. Amen.